My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's cold case investigative team. This season, we're working to break the case for the family of Linda Malcolm. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. This particular episode contains some graphic discussion on the victim's injuries with medical explanations. Some listeners may find this level of detail triggering. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Previously on Break the Case. After spending 10 years hounding the Port Orchard Police Department and finally having no faith in giving up, I honestly thought we would probably never find out. After meeting with the police department the other day, I feel confident now that they are really trying to work on it hard. Lead working leads in this case this afternoon. It is happening right now. And they've brought in at least three investigators from outside agencies. I feel very satisfied right now that the case is basically being worked as hard as a department can work it. We are honing in on this killer. Hey everyone, it's Jen back here on Break the Case with a very special guest today. I have George with me, and I also have Brian Bird. And I think listeners are going to be really interested to hear how we met Brian. But first, Brian, can you explain to listeners what your background is? Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being involved with the team. I am a physician assistant. I graduated University of Alabama at Birmingham Surgical Physician Assistant Program in 2019 and have worked in critical care as a physician assistant since then. Prior to becoming a physician assistant, I was a respiratory therapist for 20 years and worked mainly in the ICU and the level two trauma emergency department. So my background has been in medicine for well over 20 years. And you're an Army veteran, right? I am. I spent three years in the U.S. Army. I was in the infantry and was stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado first, and then in Baumholder, Germany with the unit over there. That's so funny, George. I can't remember if I told you this, but Fort Carson was my first duty station too. That is interesting. Yeah. We didn't overlap years there, but it's funny when he said that was his first duty station. I'm like, oh, it was mine too. Yeah. And it's right down the road from both of us now. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to have you with us because George and I have been looking for someone with medical expertise to help us dig into Linda Malcolm's autopsy and her injuries and help us better understand those. So you are a blessing to our team, let me tell you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be involved. I discovered you guys by happenstance, just watching YouTube in the evenings I'm a little bit of a science nerd and really particularly interested in murder cases, cold cases, kind of through a scientific approach, making the data make sense and trying to sift through all the information as a team and everyone has something to bring together. So that's when I reached out to you with this crowdsourcing that you do 
you and George. And so I'm really excited to be a part of the team and hopefully I can contribute something. Oh, yes, you already have. (laughs) So, Brian, I guess let's just kind of get into it. You've examined Linda's autopsy and you came away with some conclusions that Jennifer and I, I thought it was fascinating reading. I don't know what you would call it, the dossier you sent us on this case. (laughs) Starting off with one of the interesting conclusions that you came up with was that there was blood coming out of the left side of her mouth. And what does that mean to you? George, that's exactly right. Just looking at the autopsy photos and reading the autopsy report, the photos that I looked at showed that there was blood coming out of one side of her mouth. And so oftentimes when we see that in the uh, medical setting, that is indicative of blood that's coming up from the lungs. So it tells me that at some point she had blood in her pulmonary system that erupted up her windpipe, known as the trachea, and was coming out of her mouth. It it takes a pretty significant amount of blood for that to happen. And her lungs did have a great deal of blood in them, didn't they? Yes, they did. It looks like there was about three liters in her right lung, and I think two and a half liters in the left lung. And I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit just from an anatomical perspective. So, you know, we have two lungs, one on the left side and one on the right side, and those are connected to a central windpipe known as the trachea. The trachea comes from the mouth down to connect to the lungs. The trachea splits right under the sternum, and one trachea, known as the right main stem, goes over to the right lung, And then another piece of the trachea, known as the left main stem, goes over to the left lung so that both lungs get air. The windpipe that goes over to the right lung is not as acutely angled as the one on the left. So oftentimes, uh, clinically, whenever someone aspirates or they have a foreign body that goes into their trachea, we oftentimes see that settle out into that right lung because it's the path of least resistance. And so seeing that she has three liters of blood in her right lung, that makes complete sense just based on the anatomical design of the left and right trachea. Wow, I never knew that. No. Yeah, left and right main stem, it it splits off or bifurcates from the trachea. So how many liters do we have on average in the human body of blood? So the human body has about four to six liters of blood. And it looks like most of the blood in her body went into her lungs. So unfortunately, she would have, in a sense, drowned in her own blood and suffocated from this. How quickly do you think her lungs filled with that blood? I think it probably happened fairly quickly, within three minutes to five minutes. And while that's a short amount of time, it's also, in a sense, a long amount of time to to suffer and to struggle to breathe. Sure. I mean, I'm just imagining like if you're stuck underwater for three to five minutes, that's forever in a day yeah. that you're struggling. Well, Jen, there's another aspect to it too. She may have been unconscious at this point. Mm-hmm. So maybe she wasn't consciously suffering. We could hope for that. Hopefully not. Yeah. Hope so. Yeah. So Jeff, our knife expert thinks this was a very dynamic fight. 
and that she was at least upright for part of it. If that's true, how long do you think she would have been able to try and defend herself or fight her attacker while she was upright once she suffered a puncture to one or both lungs? I would agree with the knife expert in that this was a dynamic fight. Jen, I think first what happened is there was an encounter, and I'm just trying to hypothesize, and I don't want to get siloed or anchored into one thought or another, Mm -hmm. but just want to look at the evidence with eyes wide open. You know, I think there was most likely a confrontation that occurred at some place inside her house. And I think we should maybe talk about the defensive wounds that she had. Sure. I think this is probably the start of the encounter before she was fatally wounded. On her right upper extremity or her right arm, she had eight separate defensive wounds. And on her left upper extremity, which is her left arm, she had five wounds. So looks like a great amount of injury was done more so to the right side of her body than the left side of her body in terms of defensive wounds. And so if you and I are face-to-face and we are engaging in combat or swapping licks, I could imagine that she's defending herself with her right arm. If you hold your right arm below the nipple line, you can see that the backside of your arm is exposed, and that's where she got four wounds. And then if you raise your right arm above your chin or above your head in a defensive posture, you're going to receive wounds to the backside of your arm. So I almost wonder if this person was left-handed since the majority of the wounds that she received in a defensive manner were to her right upper extremity. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but I think that's certainly something that we should consider. And then the same thing happened with the left upper extremity. She had two to one part of her arm and then three to the outside part of her arm. So, you know, our knife expert alluded to the fact that the person that did the stabbing likely injured themselves. Mm -hmm. And I almost wonder if this assailant started out maybe using their dominant hand. I think that makes sense. Yes. And it might have been their left hand causing injuries to her right arm as if they were facing one another, Mm -hmm. potentially injured their hand and had to change hands which would explain the fewer injuries to the left upper extremity. Maybe the person wasn't as comfortable using their non-dominant hand and delivered fewer blows there. I don't know. It's something that I do think we should consider, though. Yeah, that was such an interesting observation that I had not thought of. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because we don't know what hand for sure the killer used. And I thought your idea that maybe they switched hands was really interesting, too, because I didn't think of that. Yeah. No, that would definitely throw a monkey wrench into the works because if you're trying to figure out the dominant hand of the assailant, if they switched hands, that would cause all sorts of different information patterns that we'd have to examine. Brian, she had two areas of blunt force trauma. Could you tell us what you thought about those injuries? Yeah, she had a laceration over her right 
temporoparietal area and some highly medical terms with a subgaleal hemorrhage. And basically, I think if I were to put that into lay speak, that this subgaleal hemorrhage would be comparable to a bruise that would be seen, which she also had on her chest wall. And so if she had this injury over her right side of her head, that almost speaks to me saying maybe this person hit her with their fist using their left hand, which gets back to this potential left-hand dominance to be considered. I've hypothesized that with a blow to this side of the head, it may have knocked her back on the bed and potentially knocked her out or really stunned her. And then there was another blunt force injury that she suffered, which was a subfascial hematoma to the right side of a rib cage, which here again is indicative of some sort of a blunt force trauma. And this may have been a strike again with the left hand to her rib cage. I didn't see any evidence that the ribs were broken here. So it was a forceful hit, but not enough to break any ribs. That makes sense. Is it possible the blunt force trauma to her head could have been caused by her falling into something? Like if she tripped or got pushed, could it have also resulted from her hitting her head on something? It's certainly possible. All possibilities are on the table. She did have a cut to her head, so that's certainly possible. And how serious was that injury to her head? Putting aside all the stab wounds and everything else, if somebody just suffered that level of blunt force trauma to their head, would it knock them unconscious? Would she have a great deal of bleeding? Or what would you expect would be the result? I don't think it caused any bleeding on the brain. I think it could have potentially knocked her out or really stunned her, but it wasn't enough, in my opinion, to cause death. Okay. I think that it probably knocked her down or knocked her out, but this was not the fatal blow here. Okay. I think we would have seen a lot more blood and we would have seen injury to the skull itself. The skull was intact. Okay. So it's an injury that a person would recover from in normal circumstances. Absolutely. Okay. That helps a lot. Yeah. So we know that one of the stabbing injuries punctured the right atrium of her heart. Yeah. And you had some interesting conclusions about what would have happened after that wound was delivered. What are your thoughts? Again, all of this is very dynamic and happening very quickly. All the blood in our body goes in a circular motion, which is being pumped by the heart. And all of the deoxygenated blood that has traveled through the body and delivered oxygen and nutrients to the cells and to the tissues and at the end of the day circles back around to the right side of the heart and first stop is the right atrium. So this is deoxygenated blood that is being delivered back to the heart to be pumped yet again through the lungs and delivered to the body. Whenever this injury occurred, I suspect that there was a lot of blood spurting that was going on with each beat of the heart. In addition to blood being on our assailant and in the crime scene itself, the heart has a sac that it is situated in. And I suspect that blood 
very likely accumulated in the sack, which built up pressure and, in essence, smothered the heart from beating. So this is called a pericardial effusion, and it can quickly make the heart go into some lethal cardiac arrhythmias and eventually just stop pumping altogether. So are we talking seconds, minutes? What kind of time frame from the time that she suffered that wound would her heart start to fail? She was young and probably in fairly good health. So this could have gone on for a couple of minutes, which is an eternity whenever you're the person suffering a wound like this. And you mentioned this blood on the assailant. How bloody do you think the offender got during this? I think that the offender got incredibly bloody. There are several other wounds that we'll talk about as we go along, but this had to be done in close proximity. The knife was estimated to be, I think, five inches long. So this is very, very up close and personal. And I hypothesize at this point that maybe she is on her bed after being struck in the head and then the rib cage. And I suspect that maybe our assailant was straddling her and delivering these fatal blows to her. So this is very up close. Mm -hmm. This is very personal. And I think that our assailant really was covered in a large amount of blood here. So this person probably left this scene with blood on all the articles of clothing they were wearing. If they had a car, then had to get into their car. And so there's a good chance they transferred blood into their vehicle. And we've put this out for listeners of the podcast before, but if anybody remembers somebody disposing of clothes that looked bloody or burning them or saw what they thought was blood in a vehicle around this time, we would obviously be very interested to hear about that. Based on the autopsy photos and autopsy report, I cannot imagine that the assailant was not absolutely covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Plus, they may be bleeding themselves from their own cut. Great point. I suspect, just as our knife expert did, that the assailant, in all likelihood, because of the amount of blood and because of how easy it is to slip, your hands get very wet with blood and it's so slippery that I cannot imagine that they didn't get injured themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, Jen, it's an interesting thought because the assailant obviously started a fire. It almost makes me wonder if they didn't burn up all their bloody clothing in the fire. And we may have another situation where it's possible that the murderer may have actually took a shower at her house before they left to try to wash all the blood off and to clean up their own wounds if they indeed were wounded. Yeah, I do suspect they probably had to find something. If they sliced open the palm of their hand or their fingers or whatever, they probably had to find something in the house, like a rag to wrap, I would think. Otherwise, they're just going to be leaving more and more of their own blood everywhere. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't think about a shower, but they might have done that. Yeah, I don't think this was planned or anticipated. And I think that the assailant, in all likelihood, realized after the fact that this was way more than they could clean up. This is way more than they could cover up. And that's probably what triggered them to realize, hey, I've got to do something to cover this up. And the only thing that I can realistically do is burn the house down in its entirety Mm -hmm. because there's just so much blood evidence and all likelihood DNA evidence. It's just got to go. 
Yeah. Well, fortunately, they failed in that respect because we do know that many pieces of evidence were collected from the crime scene and that some appear to have had DNA profiles on them. So that's awesome. Their fire was in vain. Yeah. And did not accomplish their goal. So whoever did this, I hope you hear that and you're getting nervous. Yeah. Sounds like it didn't cover up near as much as they needed to. No, no. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. So you also pointed out in your notes that the liver is very vascular, and we know that Linda did have a couple stab wounds to her liver. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, there's a couple of things here. The liver is on the right-hand side of the body. This makes me, again, think the possibility of a left-handed assailant is certainly within the realm of possibility. If you're facing someone and you're attacking them with a knife, it would be a lot easier to strike the liver if you were left-handed than if you were right-handed. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but it makes it more conceivable. And then one other thing that I wanted to be sure and point out about the liver, one of the largest vessels in the body returning all this deoxygenated blood back to the right side of the heart that I mentioned earlier is called the inferior vena cava. And the inferior vena cava runs through the liver, through the back side of the liver. And so here again, just an enormous amount of blood, I think about 20 to 30% of our blood goes through the liver. It's a very vascular organ. And so whenever our assailant struck Linda in the liver with this knife, there had to be massive hemorrhage, massive blood flow. And if it struck the inferior vena cava, would have been another fatal blow with Linda quickly becoming unconscious and essentially bleeding out. And so I think that there was blood everywhere. In addition to that, real close to where the liver is located, it's right under the dome of the diaphragm. And I understand that the diaphragm was pierced as well. And the diaphragm is one of the muscles of ventilation. So whenever this diaphragm was punctured, it was in all likelihood taken out. We have a diaphragm that goes from the left side of our body to the right side of our body, but is broken into two pieces. We refer to that as the left hemidiaphragm and the right hemidiaphragm. And so in addition to her liver being punctured and a lot of blood loss, one of the primary muscles of ventilation was uh, severely injured with that blow. Oh, interesting. I did not realize that. If someone suffers, say, one stab wound to the liver and that's it, if they get quick medical attention, can they be saved? Or is it almost always a lethal injury? 
I think they could be saved if they received medical attention soon enough, especially if the inferior vena cava was not injured. I think one of the hugest takeaways from your analysis is that this fight could not have lasted very long, that it was pretty short-lived. Yeah, I think so. Very violent. It seems to me very personal and very enraged person. Mm -hmm. Very tragic. For sure. And totally unnecessary, obviously. Absolutely. So Linda was petite, right? She was pretty small. And you had noted her size as being an interest because George and I have talked about this too. It's like, if say her attacker is a large male, why did he have to go to this much trouble to overpower her, right? That's certainly a big deal in this case, Jen. I'm 5'11", 250 pounds. Uh, I think she was five foot and 100 pounds on autopsy report. So let's say she was 110, 120 living. Mm -hmm. For most men, I think of my size, she would not be someone that would be difficult to control. If I wanted to toss her around or to subdue her, I think I could do that quite easily with no weapons at all. So I find it interesting that a weapon was used to be able to, at least in the initial phase, subdue her to which she had defensive wounds trying to fight off her attacker. So I think in this case, we have to look at our assailant's size. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a big person because I think a big person wouldn't had to have gone to this extent. George, I remember you saying the same thing when I was at your house. We were talking about this. George's wife is very petite, like Linda was. And uh-huh. I mean, and George isn't going to attack his wife. I know that. <laughs> he's saying, why would I need to go get a knife to subdue somebody that size? Yeah. I wouldn't need to. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the one detail that kind of stands out to me is that if this was a large man or even just a man, period, I don't understand why they needed a weapon. Right. And then the other thing is, just keeping the blinders off here, maybe this was a young male, maybe in their late teens or early 20s, and they were small in stature. So that would be something to certainly consider as well. I don't know who the neighbors were or anything, but I think that's something that should be considered. Something that just occurred to me is maybe the use of the knife screams inexperience. I think people believe it's easier to stab someone than it actually is. And so maybe somebody thought this would be a much easier task than it turned out to be, which in turn would say inexperienced criminal, you know, someone who had never been in a knife fight or any type of fight before. Just possibility. I want to go back to one more injury. There's an injury that appears very close to her spinal cord. What are your thoughts on the damage that that injury caused? And do you think it damaged her actual spinal cord, resulting in possible paralysis? Yeah, I think the injury that you're speaking of was the final injury that was dealt to Linda. I think at this time, she was probably already deceased from the other injuries that we've already discussed. I think she bled out, and I think she suffocated due to all the blood volume that was evident in her lungs. 
with this injury, if she were alive, it would have cut off all electronic communication, nerve innervation below that, which includes breathing and heartbeat. She would have been completely paralyzed. The spinal cord is not deep. So with a five-inch knife, it's very conceivable that it would have severed the spinal cord, if not completely, at least in part. If it had not been the last one, say for somehow, some reason, it was the first one, she wouldn't have been able to function after that, right? That's right. Okay. I think it's a fatal blow. The coroner said the same thing, too, that that was one of four lethal wounds that she suffered. After the defensive wounds, let's say this was a first blow, then all of these others would have been incredibly, incredibly unnecessary. Yes. And I think that this person was enraged. I think they were really pissed off. And I think they were wanting to get out of there. And so I just can't see it going in that order. Mm -hmm. So here's my issue. (laughs) George and I have discussed this. And you and I did a little bit, Brian, but I would like to talk about it more. No matter when she suffered that stab wound, how does she end up on the far side of her bed on the floor? Because from that point, she's not conscious. I don't think she could have been. What are you guys' thoughts on how she ends up where she does? If it's okay with you guys, I'd like to give my rendition of what I think happened from start to finish here. Yes, absolutely. Sure. Go for it. We'd love to hear it. So I think at some point, Linda discovered that there was a person inside her house. Whether they were invited or not, there was a confrontation that took place with Linda and this person. I think words were exchanged, and I think it escalated. I think it became very heated. I think the assailant had a knife that they pulled out. I think that they started making stabbing motions towards Linda, which explains her defensive wounds. I would suspect that she probably was backed into a corner, literally, backing up to her to the edge of her bed with the back of her knees at the edge of her bed. I think that once the assailant was injured, that they struck her to the left side of her head with their left hand. I think they struck her to the left side of her chest with their left hand. I think the blow to the head made her pass out and she fell back on the bed in a crossways type manner. I think that the assailant stabbed her front on, both in the chest and in the liver. I think that she bled to death. I think that she suffocated. And I think once this was over, I think that the assailant rolled her over onto her stomach, stabbed her in her spinal cord, and then either flipped her back on her back And she, laying in a pool of blood, slid off the edge of the bed, or during the course of the fire, slid down in the position that she was found. That's just my hypothesis. Okay. What do you think, George? It seems kind of factual based on what we know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a very good hypothesis. The way she ends up is just really odd to me. Well, the thing of it is, we got to remember something. When somebody's in an absolute rage to the point where they're killing another human being, There are just some details that don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. It happens. Yeah. 
And all of this will make more sense later down the road, I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. The level of overkill in this murder, it's truly unbelievable. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you, George. This is an extreme level of overkill, which makes me think that this is somebody that she interacted with on a frequent or semi-frequent basis. This is someone that she, in all likelihood, knew and had done something to anger this person to the point that they just really let it rip. Mm -hmm. I think that if this were some sort of a robbery or something like that, it would have been a one and done. But this was clearly a very brutal, a very violent and tragic way to die. For sure. Mm -hmm. My top theory is this erupted out of some level of rage at her. I don't think it's a sexual encounter that went wrong. I don't get that feeling at all, even though I know she's naked and that's an odd detail too, but there's other explanations. I think like you just said, there's some altercation that occurred. She knew the killer and they were just beyond pissed at her for whatever reason. One other thing that I did want to throw in there, a couple of things, actually. Mm -hmm. Some of the wounds that were documented in the autopsy report indicate that they did not penetrate the thoracic cage. And back to what we were talking about previously in, in terms of her size, I've got a lot of meat on my bones, and Linda did not have a lot of meat on her bones. She was a very petite person. Mm -hmm. And for some of these knife wounds not to penetrate the chest cavity itself kind of speaks to the point that this assailant was in all likelihood just covered in blood, especially with her hands, and that whenever they lunged at her with the knife, that it struck her but didn't penetrate the chest and I suspect that at that point, the, the assailant, their hand was probably slipping on the knife because it wouldn't take a lot of force to penetrate Linda's chest based on her anatomical size. Okay, that makes sense. Well, and also it could be indicative of something else, too, that her attacker just didn't have very good manual dexterity, which could also be a sign that the person who's doing this is female. Exactly. And just lacked the strength to drive the knife through the chest cage. Mm -hmm. We're pretty confident based on Jeff's analysis that at least one attempt was in the sternum area and that the sternum stopped the knife. And he thinks that there's a good possibility that that was when the killer's hand slipped down the knife blade. But there's probably others like that too, where it hit ribs or whatever and didn't penetrate. Exactly. And I think you mentioned this before, but just to reiterate it, I think it's really important for anyone that's tuning in or listening to think back. Was there someone that had a hand injury during the time surrounding Linda's murder? Someone that maybe she interacted with? Because in all likelihood, this person was injured as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe not to the point of needing stitches, but to the point where their hand was they were going to have to have it bandaged for a few days, I think at a minimum. And obviously, if you're around other people, somebody's going to notice or maybe ask about it. So again, a call out. If you remember anybody in the Port Orchard area, you know, in May 2008 afterwards that had a bandaged hand, we would really like to know about that. George, you got anything else? Jennifer and I talk about this. It's interesting when we talk to people who have different expertises in different fields. 
it's always interesting to compare and contrast their conclusions because you came to a lot of similar conclusions to Jeff. Not all similar, obviously, but it's interesting because we get to see these things from so many different angles. Yeah. And I think that's the power of our group is that we have different areas of expertise and we all have something to bring to the table. Yeah. And if you think this is the only time we're going to consult you, <laughs> you're mistaken. <laughs> I look forward to it. I would like to say one thing, if I may. Yes. Just to Linda's family, know that we care about you and that we are working very hard. And hopefully we will be able to make some contribution to you getting closure. Definitely. Our thoughts are always with the family. For sure. Well said. We've emphasized over and over that this is the best chance Linda has now of her case getting solved. The team that the Port Orchard Police has put together with outside resources and everything, it's the most broad, experienced team that's ever been on her case. And so if this is going to be solved, this is the year. They just wanted every resource possible put towards Linda's case, and they have that now. So that's a very positive step. And just one other thing, if the assailant is listening and tuning in, maybe their heart has been heavy for many years and they just want to unload this burden that they've been carrying around. Maybe now's the time to to turn themselves in and just put an end to this. Yeah, I am positive the district attorney would certainly take that into account if somebody came forward rather than detectives having to go knock on someone's door and putting cuffs on the person. They always take that type of action into account when looking at the charges and sentencing. Great point. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I am so glad that we connected with you through YouTube of all places. Yeah. But (laughs) we have been looking for someone with your expertise for a while. And so this was meant to be. I have learned a lot today (laughs) during this conversation. This has been so helpful and insightful. And I think it will be for all the followers of Linda's case as well and the detectives who are working it. Well, thank you, George. And thank you, Jen, both for having me and allowing me to play a small role in this and look forward to many more. Yes, definitely. You're part of the team now. You're stuck with us. Fantastic. Our investigation into Linda's case is very much real time, and much of what we're currently working on is confidential and is in collaboration with the police department. Listeners should know that there are some exciting developments happening in Linda's case. We don't have a set schedule on releasing our next podcast episode, but as soon as we have updates that are publicly available, we will record and publish. In the meantime, I encourage everyone listening to join the Facebook group dedicated to Linda's case called The Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm. George and I actively participate in that group and lead dynamic and intriguing discussions about the case. We greatly encourage all members to share their thoughts and ideas. More to come very soon. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.